0: Hello and welcome to the Autoimmune Remission Podcast. My goal is to help you cut through the confusion, create clarity, and gain momentum on your path to autoimmune remission. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Autoimmune Remission Podcast. Today, I got an action-packed episode for you. We're talking about all things fiber. This is something that everyone should be eating and you probably need to eat more of but there's so much people get wrong when it comes to fiber. There are so many mistakes. I think there are so much, there's so much misinformation spread. So a quick overview of what we're going to discuss today. We're going to go over those common misconceptions about carbohydrates and fiber. We're going to discuss everything you need to know about fiber, what it is, how to get more of it, why you should eat it. We're going to discuss why are people completely eliminating it with something like the carnivore diet. There are times where you might want to reduce fiber to improve some autoimmune type symptoms, and we'll discuss those reasons. But at the end of today, you're going to leave with concrete knowledge on what fiber is and how you can utilize it to improve your health and help you reach autoimmune remission. So let's start with the misconceptions. First of all, fiber is a carbohydrate and carbohydrates have a common misconception that when you eat a carbohydrate, that it spikes your blood sugar, which is true, but that this blood sugar spike is responsible for adding fat to your midsection, right? So the more carbohydrates you eat, the more your blood sugar spikes, the more fat you add to your midsection. And this is not correct. I discussed this in my last episode talking about all things weight loss and autoimmune health. Blood sugar spikes are a sign of completely normal health. It's a completely normal response and healthy response to eating carbohydrates because your blood sugar will fall afterwards. It will come back down. Now, the more fats and the more proteins you get with your carbs, the less that blood sugar will spike. The only people that have an issue with blood sugar spikes is somebody with type 1 diabetes. Outside of that, the vast majority of people should not be concerned at all with spiking blood sugar. The only way you're going to increase fat or increase adipose body fat from carbohydrates is if it's in the context of a caloric surplus. So if you're eating more calories than you burn. And again, for more information on that, check out my previous episode, I'll, I'll post it in the show notes. The second common misconception about fiber is that they are filled, they're riddled with plant toxins and lectins and that these ingredients have negative health outcomes. And you're going to see this spread all over social media and they feel real. (laughs) The way in which these people talk about these plant toxins is scary. And I've fallen prey to their lies as well. But When you look at the overwhelming body of evidence, so many meta-analyses where they take a look at total fiber intake, it has tremendous health outcomes in lowering cholesterol, lowering blood sugar, helping people lose weight, helping people live longer lives, decreasing risk for cardiovascular disease and strokes and so on and so forth. It goes on and on and on. And if these plant toxins and lectins had negative health outcomes in humans, we would see them in these studies, but we just don't all human health tends to improve when people eat more fiber. Then the next point, if you're eating fruits and vegetables, you got to get it organic because they're riddled and sprayed with pesticides. So you've got to go organic. I've countered this argument before in another episode where I overcome some common misconceptions and bust some common myths. I'll, I'll talk about this one briefly. I, I would reference what I just said to the the previous point about plant toxins. If there were issues with pesticides, we would see them in these studies because these studies are not using organic fruit and vegetables when they're taking a look at fiber intake. They're using conventional produce and yet human health improves. It doesn't get worse. So these arguments fall flat when we actually look at the data. They sound like they make sense, right? They sound legitimate. And I think in theory, they make sense, but theories are great until they're debunked in studies. And at that point we have to move on from them. So. In addition to that, this is a very elitist argument because not everybody has access to organic produce and not everybody can afford organic produce. And then when we vilify conventional produce, it's going to scare people away from consuming something that's incredibly healthy for them because of something they saw some rich person say on social media. So it's incredibly dangerous to lob these half hearted assertions about these perfectly healthy foods. That everybody should be eating more of. So if you want to eat organic and you can afford it, and you have easy access to it, don't let me stop you. Just You should know that organic produce is also sprayed with pesticides. They're just labeled as organic pesticides, but they do the same thing. So if you want to eat organic produce, like I do from time to time, and when the cost is reasonable, then go ahead. But you should not be afraid of conventional produce. Okay. We've overcome some common misconceptions when it comes to produce, when it comes to fiber in total and carbohydrates. Now let's talk about exactly what fiber is and and what it can do for us and why we want to consume it. Fiber, which is a type of carbohydrate, which comes from plants, is something that we as humans do not digest, right? Whereas you were to eat protein or fats or other carbohydrates, you would break down those individual components of those food groups and use them for something in our body, tissue repair, energy, so on and so forth. We don't do that with fiber. Fiber passes through us undigested until it reaches the small intestine where some fibers can pull in water or fiber goes to the large intestine where it can become food for our gut bacteria. So there are three ways to classify fiber. You have soluble versus insoluble, viscous versus non-viscous, and fermentable versus non-fermentable. So I'll go through those one more time insoluble fiber versus soluble fiber. So insoluble is the rigid plant cell wall, right? So the harder the plant, generally speaking, the more insoluble fiber it's going to have. So think about a celery stem or nuts and seeds, right? These are very hard plants. You're, it's a good bet that they're high in insoluble fiber. Soluble fiber means that it's dissolvable in water, right? Whereas insoluble means it does not dissolve in water. So soluble dissolves in water. And then within soluble fiber, You have viscous and non-viscous, meaning it creates a gel-like substance in water. So think about something like chia seeds. Obviously, that's that's highly viscous because when you put it in water, it creates this vegan egg, right? This gel-like substance that people will use in cooking and make chia pudding. So there are many types of viscous fibers versus non-viscous soluble fibers. Then you also have, this is mostly within soluble fiber. You have fermentable versus non-fermentable. So another subcategory fermentable versus non-fermentable, meaning this fiber, this type of fiber passes through our GI tract untouched until it reaches the large intestine where it becomes food for our gut bacteria, where it becomes fermented by our gut bacteria, right? And then you have non-fermentable, which obviously is not food for our gut bacteria. So let's talk about the reasons we want to consume a variety of these fibers. Insoluble fiber, right? The type that is not soluble or is not dissolvable in water once it reaches the small intestine it pulls water into the intestines which can help add bulk to the stool and increase motility so if somebody is struggling with constipation adding insoluble fiber is typically a great place to start then let's talk about soluble fiber again dissolved in water and it has degrees of viscosity Generally speaking, the more viscous a fiber is, the healthier it is for you. I'm not saying that non-viscous is not healthy, but viscous tends to have more health benefits. That gel-like substance actually slows digestion, which can decrease blood sugar. It's going to increase your satiety because it's gonna make you feel fuller for longer. It also absorbs bile acids. So if you have high cholesterol, it's going to help lower your cholesterol. Plants like oats, beans, chia, flax, and psyllium are all examples of soluble fiber that are highly viscous. And then you have fermentable versus non-fermentable, right? So I gave you a, a quick example or a quick understanding of what it is. It's food for our gut bacteria. So these are prebiotic fibers. The bacteria in our gut are called probiotics. And these, these bacteria and these microbes in our gut are <laughs> high in number. We have trillions of bacteria and microbes in our gut. There are more microbes in your gut than there are stars in the sky than there are cells in your body. So we are more microbe than we are human, which is just insane to think about. I discussed this at length in my microbiome episode. I'll share that in the show notes, but just quickly, these prebiotic fibers feed our probiotics, which in turn create postbiotics and postbiotics, which are acetate, butyrate, and propionate. These short chain fatty acids, postbiotics have a tremendous health benefits in humans. They lower inflammation They improve immune function. They lower the risk of non-communicable diseases like autoimmune disease and IBD, diabetes, heart disease, stroke. So increasing your intake of fermentable fibers can help eliminate some of these symptoms, a lot of these symptoms that people with autoimmune disease struggle with. So it's critical that we increase our prebiotic fibers. Now, it's important to know that you're not going to find many plants that are just one type of this category, right? So uh, most plants are gonna have a variety of insoluble and soluble fiber, viscous and non-viscous, fermentable, non-fermentable, right? And what we're gonna discuss here in a bit is why you want to know why it's important to understand these different classifications based on some of the symptoms you may have. Generally speaking, across the board, more people just need to be eating more fiber. I don't care the the type of content, I just want variety, right? the American gut project, which is a huge, massive study has shown very positive health outcomes for people who eat more than 30 unique plants per week. Now, if you're at five and you're trying to go from 30, that's going to be really difficult. So the main takeaway is just to add more variety in your diet each week, the general recommendation for total fiber quantity. So not the variety, but just the total amount per day is 15 grams per 1000 calories consumed. The average consumption In America at least is under 15 grams. So if you're eating 2000 calories per day, you want to get around 30 grams of fiber per day. Okay. But again, both the quantity and the variety are very important. If you're just hammering flaxseed all day that, you know, that's better than nothing, but the variety is really where you're going to improve your gut health and overall health. Okay. So we just talked about all these benefits of fiber But why are people completely cutting it out in favor of something like a carnivore diet or some other highly restrictive diet? Well, there are diseases that are growing, right? So many people with autoimmune disease that have these horrible symptoms, right? Whether it's rheumatoid arthritis or ulcerative colitis and Crohn's and Hashimoto's and Graves and so on and so forth, they have these horrible symptoms and they want to do whatever they can to eliminate these symptoms. And the thought is that there may be some food sensitivities taking place, which is causing these symptoms to get worse. So we want to go in, we want to eliminate some of these potential food sensitivities to help improve our symptoms. Now let's take a look at IBD and IBS, which are very obviously characterized by gut health. So these individuals typically have more urgency to go to the restroom. They may have blood in their stools. They may have diarrhea. They may be going five plus times per day, maybe double digit times per day. So it's an it's it's uncomfortable obviously they don't know what to eat it's <laughs> they need to know where a restroom is every time they go out anywhere in the world it's obviously something that people live with in pain and live with in fear okay so that's why people are cutting out some of these foods and fiber tends to exacerbate some of these symptoms in people right particularly with ibd and ibs they tend to exacerbate some of these symptoms well, why is that the case well these people with compromised guts tend to have some of the following symptoms they have a disrupted mucosal layer so along our gut lining we have a mucosal layer that again is it's just a layer of mucus that is designed to protect our gut lining and then protect foreign pathogens or even just cells from getting from the outside world into our inside world okay so it's a protective layer These people often have disrupted mucosal layers. They may also have a suboptimal microbiome. They may not have the right type of bacteria to digest some of those prebiotic fibers that we were discussing. And then they may also have some bacteria in areas where it shouldn't be, like SIBO, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. If somebody has a lot of bacteria in their small intestine and then they're eating a lot of fermentable fiber, that's going to give them a lot of discomfort in an area where they should not be fermenting fiber, where it's not ready for it. So just going back to those symptoms, when you have any of these symptoms or you suspect that you do fiber again, often exacerbates and it makes worse. Some of those symptoms So, insoluble fiber in particular, right? The type of fiber that's not dissolvable in water can aggravate the lining of the colon. When that mucosal layer is disrupted, fermentable fiber can cause excessive gas, bloating, pain, diarrhea, for those individuals with suboptimal microbiomes, for those individuals that lack the gut microbes, either the the strain itself or just the volume of bacteria in their guts. And when these people completely eliminate fiber, they feel better in the short term. They feel amazingly better. And then they think this diet, this carnivore diet, this highly restrictive diet, this is for me. I feel so much better. I need to do this for the rest of my life. But the problem is, is we don't know the long-term impact on humans with this highly restrictive diet. We know what it does in mice, and we can easily extrapolate that into humans. And we've seen some evidence of this. In mice, they have performed studies where they take a perfectly healthy mouse and they restrict the type of fiber, or they restrict all fiber. And what they see is that the bacteria, the gut bacteria of that mouse starts to dwindle. And then that, that translates to the mouse's children and the children's children, And the children's children's children (laughs) right so just on and on and on and what you can see is that this lack of diversity in the gut passes generation to generation and when you're three or four generations down the line the microbiome is significantly lessened and to a point where it's unrecoverable and the health of the mice get worse generation after generation So it's easy to test this in mice because the lifespan is very short. Obviously that's not the case in humans. But I think it's safe to say, when you take a look at standardized, westernized countries and the rise, the rapid rise of autoimmune disease and other non communicable diseases, certainly there are a number of reasons for that. But the lack of fiber and the lack of diversity of fiber has to be a reason. It's really hard to say and dismiss this completely. And the problem is, is if we go on restrictive diets What impact are we having on our children? And if they do the same, our children's children. So recapping that point quickly, if we completely eliminate fiber, we will, we will lessen our microbiome. And what we know for sure about the microbiome, 100% right now in humans, is that the more diverse a microbiome, the healthier the human, even though you may not feel great eating fiber right now, if we completely eliminate it forever, It will hurt our health and it will hurt our children's health. So if you have these horrible symptoms and fiber seems to make it worse, what do you do? Well, I am in favor of lessening it. And if you feel like you completely need to eliminate it, that's fine for the short term. But first we need to understand what are your symptoms and do you know what triggers you? Now that you understand the different classifications of fiber, it's important for you to understand, am I triggered by insoluble fiber? Or am I triggered by fermentable fiber? It's probably going to be one of those two. Something like psyllium husk, which is a soluble fiber, highly viscous, and non-fermentable, should be fine for just about everyone. Okay? But something like onions and garlic, which are high in inulin, which is a highly fermentable type of, of carbohydrate and fiber, can absolutely cause some symptoms in people, or... Again, going back to celery or a lot of leafy greens, right? If you're having a ton of smoothies each day, and you're putting a lot of berries and, and spinach and other vegetables and plants in that smoothie, there's a lot of insoluble fiber. That's going to aggravate a disrupted gut. So it's, again, it's important to know what are your triggers? So my recommendation would be to get a journal and begin logging what you eat each day. You can do this on your phone. You can do this on pen and paper. Log what you eat each day and then what are your symptoms? log what you eat and what are your symptoms. You could go meal to meal. And if you have IBD or IBS or any other inflammatory or irritable bowel, something, right? Some sort of gut symptoms and you're logging your symptoms You're gonna and you're logging your food, you're going to find some correlations. I eat this and I feel this way, right? That's what we're looking for here. Once you find those associations, it's important to decrease your triggers. Probably for most people, my bet, is that it's going to be fermentable fibers. And there's an easy diet to follow. Well, uh, it's easy in in theory, it's harder in actuality because we're humans and we have cravings. But going on a low FODMAP diet, FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. You don't need to know that. All you need to know is that the first word, fermentable. right? These foods, these fibers are fermentable. And you want to go on a low fermentable fiber diet. Again, in my experience, this is the most common issue people face. For some people, if this is the problem, you'll feel better within a week. And remember, the, the great part about this is you're not completely restricting everything. It's a low FODMAP diet. It's not a no FODMAP diet. So you can do a quick Google search for what high FODMAP foods are. They give you a full list of what you can eat, what you can't eat. There's great resources online. I don't need to give that to you here. That would take way too much time. So you can do a quick Google search, find out what you want to cut down on. And you want to go there for at least one week. You can go up to four weeks of a low FODMAP diet. And then you want to begin trying to add these foods back in and then see how you feel. You don't want to go eat a whole large pizza and beer that next day. You're not going to feel very good, right? Regardless, slowly ramp up that fiber intake. Now, let's say you want on a low FODMAP diet, you're not noticing much of a change. Well, it could be that you're also dealing with a, a disrupted mucosal layer. And therefore, it would be beneficial for you to also decrease insoluble fiber. And that's where something like a Crohn's exclusion diet could be helpful. Again, you can Google this, but it's really a decrease in all fiber types for a brief period of time. So there's phases to this diet. I believe it goes four weeks, seven weeks, 10 weeks, something along those lines where you restrict highly for those first one to four weeks, slowly build up the next three weeks, slowly build up again the next three or four weeks until you're back into a normal diet. Okay. So one of those two diets, a low FODMAP and or a Crohn's exclusion diet, which I will tell you, Paul Saladino, his new diet plan, since he's not strictly carnivore now, looks eerily similar to a Crohn's exclusion diet. Okay. I don't know if he's doing that on purpose. I'm sure he is. He's a smart guy, but he's marketing it differently. Okay. So there's a reason people feel better when they do these things. But remember, it's all about restriction for the short term, to decrease inflammation, to allow this gut lining to repair, to slowly build up your gut microbes so they can handle this increase in fermentable fiber. It should not be done long-term there's no evidence to suggest that this is helpful a very restrictive diet that it's helpful for us long-term now what could also be in play here is food sensitivities which are different from everything we just discussed you could be sensitive to any particular food i don't care if it's beans and nuts and seeds and legumes or individual things like broccoli and cauliflower or it could be chicken it could be shellfish although that is probably more likely likely an allergy and a sensitivity is different than an allergy far different. And I don't recommend a food sensitivity test. I've talked about this elsewhere. But a food sensitivity, the idea for how to highlight a food sensitivity, which can cause any any kind of symptoms, right? It could be all of these symptoms that we talked about with IBD and IBS. It could be skin issues, it could be joint issues, it could be brain fog and fatigue and bloating and gas. I mean it could be anything and everything that a food sensitivity could cause. You will find out a food you, you will discover your food sensitivities by doing the exact same things we just discussed which is grab a food journal, write down what you're eating. What are your symptoms? When you don't eat what you think may be a trigger, how do you feel? And then let's eliminate that for a period of time. And again, let's try and work it back in from time to time and see how you feel. Most common food sensitivities are going to be gluten, dairy, soy, eggs, nuts and seeds, legumes and beans, corn from time to time as well. So I'm not saying eliminate all of those, Start taking a journal and see what your symptoms are like. So, again, these restrictive diets can last anywhere from four to 12 weeks. That's generally the sweet spot. If you've never done it before, this is overwhelming. And I know from experience how overwhelming it can be. And my recommendation is to go see a professional. I've given this analogy before, but if you're trying to change the oil of your car and you've never done it before and you don't know anything about engines like I do, a YouTube video is only going to get you so far. It's important to take it to a professional to get it done right the first time. And you're going to have 10 cars or more in your lifetime. You only have one body. So let's do this the right way. Let's do it once. You never have to do it again. Get with a professional, a nutritionist, a dietitian. It doesn't matter to me who you see. Just make sure that they're qualified and have experience in something like this so that you can reach your goals more quickly and with less effort. We've talked about a ton today. Let me recap this briefly for you. There are three classifications of fiber insoluble, insoluble. And then within soluble, you have viscous versus non-viscous and then fermentable versus non-fermentable. It has been proven time and time again, that fiber is tremendously healthy, tremendously healthy in humans, particularly fermentable fibers. Fermentable fibers have been shown to decrease the risk of non-communicable diseases. And for those that have them, it decreases their symptoms, but you may have some issues with urgency, loose stools, constipation, blood, so on and so forth. And I've given you many tips on how to decrease those symptoms because you're going to need to cut fiber out in the short term and then increase it in the long term. Consider doing a low FODMAP diet or Crohn's exclusion diet if you have some of these symptoms and you're not quite sure where to start. Remember, all diets like this remove fiber and then slowly build it back up. And when in doubt, seek professional guidance. Thank you for your time today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you're finding value, my request would be that you subscribe and you rate this show and share it with a friend. You can leave up to a five-star review, and that's the only way this podcast grows, is your help and your support. My goal is to help as many people as possible not have to suffer the same 20 years of autoimmune disease that I have. Please share it. I hope this has been helpful, and stay motivated.